Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode on Breast Cancer Conversations. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I am so glad you're joining us today. Today's episode is recorded from our Metastatic Breast Cancer Sunday series. Every other Sunday, we bring together a panel of experts to discuss the nascent topics, trends, research, and resources specifically for the NBC community. But honestly, these are great topics for really anybody listening. We've created a repository of this information on our website, survivingbreastcancer.org, and I'll link to the information in the show notes below. Our Sunday webinars are between 60 and 90 minutes, but for your listening pleasure, I am breaking them into segments so we can take a deep dive on these rich topics and smaller bite-sized audio experiences. Last week on Breast Cancer Conversations, we answered the question, what is palliative care? Today, we take a deeper dive in the same topic to address the question, who needs palliative care? What are the benefits? And how do you set up goals with your palliative care team? Another great resource I'd like to highlight today is the company Citizen, with whom we've recently partnered. Survivingbreastcancer.org and Citizen are joining forces to get you full control of your medical records so you can find better treatment options, including clinical trials. I was a little nervous at first in terms of privacy and medical data, but I've done the hard work for you. Citizen uses end-to-end military-grade encryption to keep your data secure, and ensures that only you decide with whom you share this information. They have amazing opportunities to get involved in research. Their services are absolutely free and of no cost to you to sign up. You can find out more at our unique URL code, which is citizen.com forward slash SBC trials. And citizens is spelled C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N.com forward slash SBC trials. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to me directly too. I'm at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Supportive care is all about trust. Right, and absolutely. building trust between that patient, the family, and the supportive care team. And can you imagine trying to build that level of trust at the end of you know life? Some of you heard the webinar two weeks ago about estate planning. That was the exact same thing that Anna Spencer shared with all of us, that you do your estate planning before the crisis. You do it while you're thinking clearly, while you have the space to to think through things. You don't do it when there's a crisis. You don't do it when everything is in chaos or when you're overwhelmed by symptoms and cannot even communicate clearly what you need. What do you say to patients who say, why do I need to add another doctor? I've already got five doctors that I have to see all the time. What do you say to those patients? Welcome to the conversation. (laughs) I actually, I do get that question all the time. Uh, and And it's a complicated question to answer. It's very hard to convince them why they need you. <laughs> oh, geez, what do I tell them? You know, one of the things that I really want to make sure that I do at the beginning, like you mentioned earlier, is to engender that trust. And, 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 you know, I always communicate to my patients that we are, in fact, part of their oncology team because they often feel that we're outsiders. We don't know any better. We don't know who they are. We've never read their chart. And that's not quite necessarily true. By the time I actually see a patient, I've pretty much dissected the chart from head to toe. So I, I know as much as the oncology does at that point. And so 
I really make sure that they understand that we're all part of the team. And, and I really tell them, you know, look, your doctor is generally very concerned about the quality of your life, the way that you're tolerating the, your treatments, the complications that we've had so far. And, you know, we're offering you an opportunity uh, to do better with your symptoms. We want your pain to be better. We want you to have more psychosocial support. And we actually want to help improve your function and your ability to continue to receive the treatments that you so desire, because often that is the goal. You know, patients do want to get better. And so you really help them understand that you're really there to support them 100% of the way. Uh, and it doesn't really matter which direction they take, whether they really want all maximal aggressive treatments, that it, it's what the patient and the families want. And, and you are supportive no matter what. I mean, you still make good, sound-based and evidence-based recommendations regardless, and you guide them to really make that best decision. But ultimately, you're there in their support, whatever the case may be. Have you heard that, Marianne, from people that they just don't want to, they don't want to see just right. one more doctor, have to make one more appointment? Oh, I'm stage one and I felt that way. So I, I get it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that one of the benefits that a true supportive care department will bring to a patient is that care management and lifting the burden of you having to navigate everything on your own. Right. And so that would be the reason, if anything, that you should try it and see. I mean, wh what's the harm in trying it? And then if you don't like it, don't use it. You know, right. if it's not for you, it's not for you. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm hedging my bets that it, you're going to like it. You know, <laughs> you're, you're going to like <laughs> someone setting up appointments for you on your behalf and pulling together all, all the things that you need based on the goals and the quality of life that you told them is important to you. Um, so, so that, th those are, and plus think about your family yeah. also, it's going to support your family as well. And wouldn't that help you, the patient feel better? It's and, and so helpful to have a group of experienced um, people who have been listening along the line, observing the patient and the people closest to them, so that as things, when things get tougher, when things get um, more emotional, you have this, this, objective, this objectivity to remind you what, what your target, what your goals of care were, what you were aiming. Not that you can't change your mind. You can, of course, change your mind. But like a rudder, you know, like a, like a rudder for the, for the trip to come back to, okay, this, this is what we had talked about. Um, are we still there? Um, that sort of thing. And, and just because, you know, I, I just can't, I can't even impart on you how, I mean, Bob and I were very well versed, right. In all of this. And it still was, it, it was immense. It was, it was, um, you know, it was huge as it, as it started to, you know, as he got closer to death, um, we were very lucky because we had, we had planned and approached for the whole thing. Um, so that all I really had to do was, you know, love him and, um, miss him, but that was still huge. Like, I, I mean, that itself is still, huge. So I can't even imagine what it's like when somebody hasn't done, you know, hasn't had some of the conversations that we had and done some of the very, you know, the practical stuff that we did. Um, so yeah, 
there's a tremendous amount of support for the family and the caregiver and for the sort of and for the record of the journey, you know, coming back to here's what we said we wanted to, you know, how was the wedding? Like, you know, I wanted to stay alive for my son's wedding. Okay, so how was the wedding? You know, that sort of thing. Now, what are we looking at? Kind of just helping the family, helping the couple or whoever it is come back to center on, you know, this is what we said, what we said were goal, our goals were. Man, what type of conversations have you been having? So from the conversations I've been having in this arena, I, I've been learning that um, the fact that medical school curriculum is so curative focused is part of how we got to where we are today. You know, so if the clinician doesn't consider supportive care or doesn't know about it, sometimes it's, it might be going all the way back to their medical school training because they never heard about it. And so they're focused on either curing you or in this case in metastatic, prolonging your life as long as possible with treatments, right? And it sounds to me from what I've been um, hearing, uh, Dr. Medina, you can correct me that supportive care doctors tend to be the ones trained in having those tough conversations with patients and families. And oncologists sometimes even refer those conversations to a supportive care doctor, you know, and so it's coming back to the patient and saying, you know, five months ago when you were diagnosed, this is what we discussed is your quality of life and your goals. And now I want you to understand what the treatment options you're being offered are and how they relate to those goals. And are you still on board with those goals or should we reassess that? Because sometimes Connecting those dots, you know, when you have so much going on as a patient is really tough and understanding what these the doctors asking me to choose, you know, between the IV chemo and I don't know what to do. That supportive care team is going to help you understand what does that really mean to your life and, and your reality. I'd certainly, uh, Marianne, and I can't even tell you my own experience. I did not know what palliative care was as a medical student. I, I don't believe that I saw it anywhere in my medical school curriculum. I learned about geriatrics and palliative care when I became a resident. Uh, fortunately, I was able uh, you know, to rotate uh, with a wonderful palliative medicine specialist, which not all hospitals have you know, that opportunity to work with a specialist like that. But I had never heard of it before. And, and you're absolutely right with the, uh, you know, some of the staff in our medical oncology service were not trained in communications training um, in how to have those difficult conversations. Uh, you know, they were not really taught to really like, like partner and advocate for those family members. That wasn't part of your training. Now there's a newer school of younger oncologists that are coming in that are probably training in places like MSK and MD Anderson, where they have you know, very robust teams and they are getting this education and, um, and this training before they even complete their oncology, um, other oncology fellowship. And so, it really depends. I believe it's probably a generational, you know, situation, but you, you see a mix of, of both. And, and you're right. In the event that maybe a medical oncologist does not feel prepared or comfortable having that conversation, they do rely on us quite a bit, uh, you know, to help them, you know, with those conversations. What are the next best treatment options based on what your goals and priorities? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Also, I had supportive care doctors tell me we have no horse in this race. We are here completely for the patient and the family. And a lot of times the oncology team is very focused on that win. You know, we're going to get you another year. We're going to get you that extra six months. But is that what the fight? 
the fight, whatever you want to term it as, right? But does that really in line with what the patient's goals are? Often it it doesn't. It doesn't really align uh, with those types of goals. We keep talking about these goals and we keep talking about coming back to the goals. So Dr. Medina, would you talk a little bit about um, how do you guide patients to set their goals? Um, And, you know, how... I guess that's the question. How do you do that? <laughs> that's a great question, Abigail. Uh, you know, in terms of having a full goals of care conversation, I mean, I can tell you this is something that I do on the initial intake and the initial consult. Um, you know, what's most important to me is to really build that rapport and that trust on the very first visit. We may, we may not have time to really discuss everything because there's really a lot to cover. And so I really tend to focus on the priorities during that visit from a patient's perspective and really helping to build that rapport and that trust uh, from day one. Now, goals can be very variable depending on what part of the trajectory the patient is in. You know, for example, maybe a diagnosis, maybe patients, for example, who are lung cancer stage, I don't know, 3, 3A, for example, maybe their goal at that time may be curative. I really want to try all curative treatments to really beat or treat or, or eradicate my condition. You know, as patients, you know, continue their journey, they have their chemotherapies or their immunotherapies or their treatments, you know, if they uh, if they don't respond, then goals might shift and, and change a little bit. You know, maybe your goals might become, I want to live another year to make it to my son's graduation, for example. Uh, you know, it, it really depends on the trajectory of the illness, the response to treatments, and, and where we are. You know, for some patients toward the end of their life, their goals, you know, may be primarily to spend time with their family members, to be able to eat, eat ice cream, not to experience pain, uh, not to experience any distress. And so the goals can be very variable depending where, where patients are. But, you know, whenever possible, I do, you know, you know, try to have those conversations as soon as possible, as early as possible, if you will. While the patients are still with it enough to be Absolutely. able to really articulate those things. Participate and really, and I'm able yeah. to elicit from them, not the family, what's really important to them. And do and you Dr. find, Tina, aren't you the one that tends to have the conversation of, um, it's time to transition you into hospice. It's time to, right? I find myself doing it quite frequently. There are some oncology colleagues of mine who are very comfortable doing that. Others are not. And, and, and for those that are comfortable, they had a, a challenging situation or, or, or a challenging dynamic with a family member, they might really request a little extra help from us to get them there. But, you know, there are times when we both teams do it. There are times when I pretty much almost exclusively, exclusively do it. I have been able to identify which are my colleagues that I think have a harder time, you know, making that transition. Uh, it, you know, it's equally challenging for them as well. And so I kind of know based on who's the referring provider, what it is that I need to do, because I've kind of learned their style and know what they're capable of doing and what they're not at this point. Knowing yourself is the first, the best first thing, right? And then knowing your your colleagues. Right. Do you find that some of these discussions are very different based on the age of the patient? And do you find that some of those goals or some of those discussions tend to be very different um, based on their age? They can be. And, and, and it's also, I think it's a generation issue. I think it's also a cultural issue. You know, you know, Miami is a very you know, diverse community, but there's a fairly large amount of a Latin community here. 
And there, there may be some misconceptions in the community where, uh, you know, some adult children may not want their parents to know that they, that they have cancer. They may not want their parents to know the extent of their cancer because they're constantly worried about, you know, removing hope from the equation. And, and you know, I know there are ways to have those meaningful, fruitful conversations without removing hope because I always try to focus on what we can still do even if things are not going well. To me, that's extremely important because if you lose that trust and that hope, you have nothing. You have no relationship. Uh, so um, what was the second part of the question, Abigail? <laughs> I sidetracked. Oh, no, for- no, no. You answered it well. I mean, I think it all comes back to this whole idea of, you know, the patient, you know, the right. family, you've developed that trust. And then you approach those discussions in the best possible way for that particular family, which right. you don't have in many other um, places in, in oncology. Um, but Jen, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about the, the caregiver support, um, whether whether you received it or not. And I'm, I'm sorry that it sounds like you didn't <laughs> okay. receive as much of the support that you could have, but oh, no, no, I understand. But but a lot of what we know in, in the metastatic community is that our caregivers don't get a lot of support. And um, for a lot of us who have husbands who might not seek out support groups or who might not seek out what you would call traditional support, there is still that worry that we have these people in our lives that you know, we can see that as much as it's hard on us, it's hard on them. So would you speak a little bit more to that as a caregiver, having gone through this process, what, maybe think about what you would have wanted or um, what, what you thought was really helpful other than obviously your journal and, and really working those things out on your own. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the classic sort of um, plight of the caregiver is that um you are working very hard to provide comfort for the person you love. Um, You are exhausted all the time. Um, And when it lets up, it's because you've lost the person you love. And um, they're there are certainly lots of things to do um, to help with that. There, there's you know caregiver organizations. There's a there's a hotline if you if you are at the end of your rope. Um, of course, you're going to ask me what that hotline is, and I don't have it on the tip of my tongue. Um, but I think it's caregiver.org is where that phone number is. But anyway, there's. Um, and maybe I can work on that while somebody else is answering a question. But there's there there is support for caregiving, care, family caregivers. There is there is an increase in awareness um, of the needs of family caregivers. Finally, um, but yeah, it's a it's a huge um, it's a huge problem. And, and understandably, you know, the main focus is going toward the person who has the cancer because because they have the cancer and, and we want them to feel um, comfortable and we want them to, you know, be around. And um, so it is, uh, it's a deficit. And, and one of the things I just, I am such a believer in with regard to palliative care is that this is the specialty 
that sees that caregiver. Every specialist I've ever worked with, neurologist, oncologist, acknowledges there is a big gap between the care that they can provide for the patient and and what the caregiver needs um, to, to help them feel supported and take care of the patient. Um, there's just a huge gap in there. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons that my very private diary became a book instead of staying, staying my, my journal about the saddest time in my life and whatever, I'll go through that someday, some therapy for that someday. But, um, but anyway, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big gap and, uh, and it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's finally, we're getting some, some acknowledgement that this is a huge, huge deal in our country. Um, we, we, you know, the, there are, as of May, there were um, 53 million caregivers up 9 million from five years ago, family caregivers wow. in the United States, caregivers who live with their um, care recipient are spending 37.4 hours a week caregiving. So they have a second full-time job taking care of the person they love. Uh, The average age is 49. So this is not strictly an old folks deal. About 25% of caregivers are millennials. Um, And the average duration is 4.5 years. and at the end of that 4.5 years, we lose the one that we that we love that we've been taking care of. Um, and so it's uh, it's a it is um, it is the hardest job you'll ever do. I have done some very difficult things in my life and my career. I have never done anything as hard as taking care of my beloved Bob. And it's the most you know it's, it was the greatest honor. Um, so it's, it's just, that's just the reality. I have a question for for sharing. (laughs) Uh, Hold hold on, hold on just Marianne, just a second. So thank you, Jennifer, for sharing just from the bottom of your heart. Amazing. That that's a wonderful way to, to look at it, that you have that ambivalence of this is the absolute hardest thing that I've ever done, but yet this is an amazing honor that I'm carrying, carrying this burden because at some point it is a burden. So I appreciate you sharing that. I did look up, uh, it is caregiver.org um, that she was referencing. And it's actually the Family Caregiver Alliance um, that, that is the entity that's at caregiver.org. And um, I just looked at the website a little bit, looks amazing, but it has that that hotline. Um, but I, those statistics are honestly are just chilling that there's that that's many people. Right? That's all pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, Yes. And that's something else, you know, that I think may exacerbate the situation. Um, but the, the, that many people with a second full-time job is not a sustainable situation. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all those caregivers had the support of a team that's saying, oh, wait, here's this home health care option that could be helpful for you. Or here's this respite option. Did you, Jen, ever have the opportunity to just get away and be by yourself? Or was that not something that was part of yourself? Um, Okay, good. Certainly, you know, Bob was the, the Bob, the the most important thing to Bob was to work. 
He wanted to continue to take care of patients. So um, he did that. I did a lot of managing of our, you know, we, we downsized, we moved out of our big old house and we moved into a condominium. We, you know, did rewrote lots of documents. We put things in my name. I did a lot of administrative sort of support stuff. Um, and then uh, about six months before he died, he could no, he could no longer work. Um, and that, that was when the sort of intense caregiving, um, started and, uh, but he was always, um, up until, I don't know, the last couple, well, I would say the last three or four weeks, I mean, I could leave him alone for, if I wanted to go have coffee with a friend, um, the last few weeks were hard because I didn't feel comfortable leaving him alone. And he really, I mean, we had a couple of times where friends came over and sat with him while I went and did something, but, um, he really, um, you know, he didn't want, um, he didn't want anybody but me. And, uh, in fact, um, in the hospital, when he was in hospice status, um, uh, we had a bad night one night and I called, I called the hospice nurse, I called in to sort of say, Hey, this is what's happened. And, uh, by the way, you can do DIY palliative care when, when the patient is a palliative care doctor, there's no such thing as DIY hospice. Okay. So don't even try it, my friends. Um, Good point. Thank you for making right. that point. Thank you for me. Um, but anyway, uh, at one point I, I called in and uh, was describing what had happened. And this was a hospice nurse and she knew Bob and, and she, um, and we live in a small town. I'm in little rock, Arkansas. She says, are, are you, are you there alone? Yeah. Well, can y'all not afford help? Oh. And I said, well, we can afford it. He doesn't want it. And she said, Jennifer, I've been a hospice nurse for 10 years and I could not do for my husband what you are doing for him right now. And so that was really validating that, you know, especially for a non-clinical person like me, which I am, but, um, it was, it was very validating, but yes, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a trip. There's no question about it. There's no question about it, but I know he died feeling very loved and well cared for. And so I, I have that. And that is so important to have that, that piece. But I also heard from what you said, don't be afraid to ask for help. If you're yes. caregiving, and it's getting difficult that there are those things out there, even if it's not a, you have to pay for private care, but there are programs out there. There is a lot of help. And the other thing, yes, that's exactly right. Absolutely ask for help. And I, I don't mean to say that we didn't, there were many things in my situation that were extremely helpful that a lot of other people don't have. You know, we had we had access. We, you know, Bob had been a physician in this community forever. So there was, you know, there were doctors falling all over themselves to help him. So Aww. we had a lot of things that we were very fortunate for. I had, I, I had a lot of different kinds of support that lots of folks don't have. So absolutely. My, my advice is um, I'm actually going to put out um, a downloadable thing with some what I'm going to call sort of um, 
free or very low expensive self-care for the caregiver. One of the things that really bothers me about what's happened with this notion of self-care for caregivers is, you know, sort of a shaming thing, a self, well, you need to take care of yourself. And you can practically hear the finger wagging, you know, and it's like, I, I don't need that extra layer of pressure or directive, right? Sometimes the greatest self-care I can get in a day is four consecutive deep breaths. I mean, I'm not joking. So I'm trying to put together a list of sort of things like, you know, very simple things like, you know, being as being as easy and kind to yourself in your thoughts as you are to a friend. I am so much harder on myself than I would, I would never speak to a friend the way that I talk to myself in my head. And things like um, at the end, instead of doing one day at a time, looking ahead at the day, do it in the evening. I got through another day, right? It makes a huge difference. Some days, one day at a time seems insurmountable. A day is insurmountable. I'm lucky to get through the next minute and a half. So, so yeah, I'm actually putting together some stuff because this is National Caregivers Month. I'm going to do something where I have it on my website. You can download it. Just a little, I don't know, 10 tips. And I think I might include the caregiver rights, you know, that National Alliance has 10 caregiver rights that I've been posting on my Instagram this month. I, and, and it's so funny to read them myself then, right? And go, hey, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I could have really used this in a certain moment back in the day. So, so anyway, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something together on that. Those are, those are great resources. And frankly, I think probably every single person could, could use a little bit of that uh, speak kindly to yourself, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that's not really just for caregivers. Dr. Medina, what role does PTSD play for the caregiver? I would probably say there's a possibility that that can actually happen. You know, I am not the expert in diagnosing PTSD, but certainly I, you know, and just as you mentioned that I'm coming across, you know, some patient examples where definitely that could have been a, a situation where a caregiver was, uh, uh, you know, acquiring these types of, uh, of behavior concern, uh, concerning for PTSD. I think certainly it's a possibility. Because, you know, as breast cancer patients, you know, I say the diagnosis is traumatic, right? But when we cancer, our loved ones cancer with us. And so it's got to be traumatic on some level for them. We remember the days our children were born and our grandchildren were born. And we remember the days we lost the people we love. And we remember the days leading up to losing the people we love. And if we haven't had some conversations and and this is where palliative care is just so incredibly valuable right and if we haven't had some people to remind me as the caregiver that no 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 this isn't this is what he wanted right it's not not this is not your death this is i mean I, you you don't say that but you know reminding him that yes we're on track for this person's goals right. you are giving them exactly what they asked for in in being supportive whether you're doing every possible life extending measure or you're doing none of them right you are giving 
this person exactly what they, because we talked about this, and then I can feel like, yes, I was a part of a piece of the peaceful death that my loved one envisioned for him or herself. And there is such great comfort in that. Conversely, there is incredible trauma in the consternation of, I don't know whether we should do dialysis. I don't know, you know, I don't know if he wants this or she wants this. And, and that is that to me, that's just the tragedy of it when that happens, because it's so avoidable um, when we simply recognize that at the end of life comes death. And if we're just willing to, to, to have a conversation and ideally to start it when people are either healthy or relatively healthy. Right. What would be the one thing that you would like to leave our listeners with um, as we wrap up today? I think my takeaway point will be uh, to really take the time um, to speak to our patients, to ask lots of questions, to really ask what's really bothering them during this you know, time of their life. You know, How can we support them? How can we help them do the best that they can possibly do? Um, and, and, and let them know that there's a lot of support available for, for many different, uh, you know, circumstances, but definitely listen, ask lots of questions and assess, assess, assess all the time. Key takeaway would be self-advocate because you are worth it. You deserve the care that is out there. And I want you to go after it. At the end of life comes death. There are no do-overs in end of life. Changed forever, the survivors remain. And talking about it, neither hastens nor delays it. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.